to a special edition of our show, Herstory, on the rock with Katie and Allie. Normally, just be Allie and I hanging out with a couple of cocktails, talking about famous women in history. But sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about famous women in history. We have a very special guest here with us today, Carrie Chappett. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. We're so excited to have you. Carrie is an award-winning historical fiction author based in the Pacific Northwest, whose writing focuses on the hidden histories of women. She's here with us today to talk about her upcoming book, Chasing Eleanor. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I live in Bend, Oregon. So I live in the Pacific Northwest. I'm originally from California. Um, I did not start writing until I turned 40. Um, I always wanted to do it, but just, was, you know, it seems like something that would never actually happen. Like I could actually do this for myself, but, you know, um, and then I have two kids and a career in healthcare. And so I'm really busy. And I think, in my 40s, I just finally decided I'm doing this for myself now. I'm not putting this off anymore. And of course, I fell in love with it. So um, I've always been a historical fiction reader. So of course, I'm a historical fiction um, author. And um, I'm just a total book nerd. And I love coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. And cocktails. I like cocktails too. Yeah. (laughs) Perfect. Well, we're so excited to get into your book. uh, But first, we have to introduce the cocktail that we made for it. Um, So this is obviously called Chasing Eleanor. Um, So it is iced tea uh, inspired by her famous quote, you know, about the tea bag. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I I have to incorporate that. Uh, Bourbon, mint, lemon uh, juice, and then a lavender simple syrup. (laughs) So cheers. Cheers. (laughs) Oh, it's so refreshing. Delightful. Good drink. Perfect spring cocktail. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love it. So let's get started. But before we dive too deep into your book, we like to set the scene for our listeners. The book takes place in the Pacific Northwest in the 1930s. What is life like in the United States during that time? And what is life like for women in the United States during that time? Um, well, Bend was lucky in that um, we had two um, mills. So they were able to, you know, ride out the depression, I would say, um, with maybe a little less difficulty than some of other places did. But they still were stuck in, you know, the hell of the Great Depression in the 30s. And so, you know, nobody had jobs. And from what I understand, I talked to a lot of the people at the Historical Museum here when I was researching it. And from what I understand, what they ended up doing is they did, like, um, sort of like a job share situation where men would show up in the morning and if they had work for the day, then they'd get to stay or they might split and do half a shift and someone else would get half a shift. So they tried to like share the, you know, the opportunities a little bit. Um, but it was just a, such a difficult time for everybody that, you know, no one had any food, no one had jobs, everyone was fighting. And then, you know, there's an added layer for women because they were not allowed to um, stand in the breadline. They were not allowed to take jobs for men. They um, were really just supposed to stay home and stay in the shadows. And um, it was really a challenge, challenging, difficult time for everybody. Mm-hmm. And you really feel that because the book focuses on this young girl, Magnolia. She is an orphan. She's trying to take care of her brothers. And, you know, she's just really trying to make it work and, Every time she tries to get help, it's like, everyone's like, I'm also struggling. I cannot help right. you. <laughs> right. 
So can you tell us a little bit about our main character, Magnolia, and about her life in Bend? Yeah, so um, the story kind of came to me when I was out on a bike ride with my family, just going along a trail, and there were, um, you know, some remnants of a log cabin. And I thought, oh, who would have lived there back in the day? And then I kind of thought, gosh, Great Depression, what if someone lived here? And it just sort of kind of came to me. And so Magnolia just, um, I really wanted her to be full of grit, and I wanted her to be, like, you know, eldest um, daughter syndrome, where she was going to take care of everybody. And even though the parents both had their issues and they kind of fell apart, the oldest daughter tended to have to step in and um, sacrifice their life to take care of their siblings. And so I imagined that during the Great Depression in Bend, it was very, very rural. You know, people were living um, in sort of shacks um, in the woods and surrounded by pine trees and by the by the river. And um, so I kind of would, it was a summer, two summers ago, I think when I was writing it and I would kayak down the river and I'd sort of sneak out like, okay, where that could be a house of hers. So I started envisioning what life would have been like in the thirties back here. And, um, Magnolia's tough and she, she's really, um, got a big heart and it was, she was fun to write in, in a challenging way because I think she's really complicated she has lots of layers and um, she's had a tough life, but she is going to take care of her brothers no matter what. And that was really the driving force of the story, which which was nice because, you know, it's when you're writing in the depression, there's so much trauma for everybody. I needed her to have some hope for why she would have been encountering all these things. And her love of her little brothers is really what carries her through the whole story. Mm. So Magnolia ends up getting a job at an inn that is an actual real historic hotel in Bend, Oregon. Can you tell us a little bit about that inn and its history? Yeah, so it was built, I believe, in the early 1900s. Definitely it was there by 1920. And um, it makes me so sad because it's not there anymore. Uh, they tore it down in the 70s because it was just falling apart. And um, they tried to save it and turn it into a historical landmark. It just didn't make it. So um, there's a modern building there now. But um, it was pretty um, cool for the time. It, they called it a chalet. And they built it with local lava rock and pine um wood and so it was a really cool display of the pacific northwest back back then um but it was like you know kind of swanky in the 20s um people would a lot of famous people would come visit there and um and enjoy central oregon and um when i was writing this book i really kind of didn't have a whole lot of plan for where this was going to go and i didn't even think about eleanor roosevelt in the first like three chapters. And then as I'm writing it, I'm researching and I read an article that said that Eleanor Roosevelt came to the end at the exact month and year that I was writing this book in. And I was like, get out. I love Eleanor Roosevelt. She's my favorite, you know, um, a historical figure. So I thought, oh, this is just too good. I have to put that in there. And, um, and so I got to work off of that real, you know, story of her being here. And so I know exactly what she ordered for dinner. That's in the book. And, um, you know, she only stayed for a night, I believe. But what's really cool is um, I go to a gym, it's called the Athletic Club, and they have a restaurant in there. 
And in the restaurant is a really old looking fireplace, um, lava rock. And um, I've always sort of noticed it, but never really thought much about it. And then as I'm writing this book and researching this book, I find out that the only thing to survive from the end was actually the fireplace. It is now sitting in my athletic club and I've been walking past it every day for years and had no idea. Oh, that's so that's cool. Crazy. Is that crazy? Yeah, the whole <laughs> the whole hotel was gone. Yeah. The fireplace survived. So I just do a little nod to it every time okay. I walk by it. Yeah, that's so cute. <laughs> I love that. And I love the incorporation of Eleanor Roosevelt into this story. So I know Magnolia is fascinated by her. I love the fact that, you know, she goes to the library and like gets everything she can about Eleanor just to read about her. And then she's in her presence. <laughs> so yeah. what were, what was Eleanor Roosevelt doing in the thirties? What was her role in America and how did women in America feel about her? You know, um, I would say not just women, but everyone was, um, little split um, (laughs) because she was such a trailblazer for the time and she really pushed boundaries. So she really did not love to be in the white house at all. Um, She was wanted to be out on the road. She wanted to travel America. She felt that the only way that they could understand the problems that people were facing is if she was out there with them. So she constantly would um, travel the country in her car she would refuse secret service and she would drive herself with a loaded pistol in the glove box um, to protect herself. And she just would drive the country and she'd go to migrant camps and she'd go to um, mines and she would go like everywhere. And she would just talk to people and say, you know, how, how can America help you? And she would bring all these bits of information back and help her husband write policy. And so she had a huge role in FDR's presidency. In fact, there are some sources that say that he might not have even gotten elected without her because he was sick with post-polio, right? And he wasn't able to make a lot of these events when he was campaigning. So she went for him and did the speeches and wrote the speeches. And so she was this quiet, powerful force. She was making more as a writer during these years than her husband made as president. Yeah. So, and it seems like Magnolia is really thriving on the energy and the hope that Eleanor Roosevelt is giving out so much so that she's literally chasing her through the country, but using the railway system. How dangerous was that to jump from train to train to try to get to somebody? Very. Um, there is. There are so many books out there on um, kids that rode the rails back then. It was very, very common because no, you know, no one had any jobs and no one had any money, and so that's the only way that they could move around. So it's really common um, in people that were, you know, doing the. Um, you know, um, agriculture work, right? So they would go wherever they needed work, they would travel. And so a lot of these kids were hopping on and off the rails. It was less common for girls, but they were out there. It was happening. Um, And some of the memoirs that I read had some really amazing stories of kids. They were like seven, eight, nine, ten, telling these stories of, you know, watching people get hurt on the train, watching people get killed on the train, but then also these really amazing stories of kindness from people as they were traveling around. And you get that a lot when you read about the, the Great Depression is, you're right, I did put in the story that every time she wanted help, she was told no because people didn't have it. But you hear over and over again, 
that those were the moments that people rose to the occasion. People that had nothing were handing out sandwiches for people that came to their door. They were baking cookies if they could. Anything they had, they were trying to share with people. I feel like that's why I've always loved the Great Depression is because your humanity kind of comes out when you have nothing else. Mm -hmm. And so when you were researching the book and kind of coming together with the story in this era, were you researching the difference between the different areas that she's going to and how the Great Depression hit it and how people dealt with it? Like, was there a big difference between the Northwest and, you know, some of the other places she's going in like Texas? Yes, definitely. So you've got the Dust Bowl happening in, you know, Oklahoma and that area. And so I wanted to incorporate that. Not too much, but she definitely, she talks about it. And then she does experience when she's in North Dakota, I think it was, um, they did have a grasshopper plague basically that came through and wiped out everything, towns in like 10 minutes or something. And so um, I, I really connected it to things that were happening um, in the environment at certain times. And it was quite different. I mean, where people were making money with illicit things like gambling or um, alcohol or whatever. Um, those would have been in different places as well. And living in Bend, um, her father would have been part of, you know, the mill industry. And so I try to incorporate incorporate specifics about each place. Yeah. That I wrote. So the last couple of years have kind of been riddled with uh, political disaster and, you know, yeah. COVID and things where hope has become really, really important again. Do you think yeah. there is a figure alive now that little girls like Magnolia could look to for hope the same way she is with Eleanor? Oh, that's such a great question. I think it depends because the reason I wrote this is because Eleanor Roosevelt was to Magnolia what she was to me as a kid, because I was always reading about history from the time I was little. And so um, it, I wasn't even looking at modern people as, um, you know, heroes. I was looking at historical figures. So um, I would argue that Eleanor Roosevelt is just as much of an idol for young women today as she was back then. She was fighting for things that no one was fighting for back in the 20s. She was fighting, you know, for civil rights. She um, went behind her husband's back to try to get an anti-lynching bill passed um, and did her own, like, you know, whatever she does in D.C. and was talking to people and trying to make favors happen and stuff. It didn't pass, but she did. She decided very early on she was going to be what she believed in and fight her whole life to make it happen. Mm-hmm. So obviously you've been interested in her your whole life. You've probably already done some research even before you wrote this book, <laughs> but did you get to do any really fun research into Eleanor Roosevelt? And obviously you're in Bend, Oregon, so you can kind of get a feel for Magnolia's birthplace, but did you right. travel anywhere to get a closer feel to Eleanor? I did not travel, um, but like you said, I have been reading about her forever. But what's neat is you know, a lot of the stories from historical figures, they're so general and big, and they always tell you the same five facts about people, right? And you're like, I want to know the cool, weird things that everyone else knows. Like, I want to know that the fireplace is still happening, even though, the, <laughs> even though the inn is gone. I want that stuff. And so really diving deep into um, 
like the FDR library online had a daily count of where she was. And then I looked for local articles for that day from wherever she was. She also had her own syndicated column that lasted for like 27 years, I think. And she wrote every day about her opinions about things. And um, so I really went in depth on those. And that's where I found these really cool stories about like um, the time that her and um, uh, Amelia Earhart were left a state dinner in their evening gowns and they commandeered a plane and flew around DC in their evening <laughs> gowns. They didn't want to be at like this stuffy party. I was like, this is the best. Why don't we already know about this? So yeah, it was really, it was a lot of interesting research, um, but you really have to dig and find those really cool, interesting stories as you guys know. Mm-hmm. Was When people sit down to read this, you know, it's coming out shortly, right? On the 15th. Mm-hmm. So 15th. when people sit down to read this over, you know, summer, they've got a nice book, either they're sitting on the beach, maybe they're at a campsite. What do you want them to walk away with after they're done? My great love in writing books is the found family trope. Every book that I write has to do with found family because I just believe in it so wholeheartedly. And I love reading about people making their own um their own families in the later part of their life. And so I want anyone who reads this to kind of walk away and think, gosh, you know, this character had a really impossible life growing up. I mean, she grew up in extreme poverty. She had mentally ill parents. Um, She lost her family. She lost everything. Um, But she still found her people. She still found happiness. She still found a way to forgive the people in her life. And that's really the message that I wanted to have um, as I was writing it. Yeah. And is there any part of the book that was your favorite to write? Like you just couldn't get enough of it. And were other parts of the book kind of more difficult to write that you're like, oh my gosh, I don't want to write about Dallas, Texas anymore. (laughs) No, the um, plot wise was fun. What's neat about this book is she's traveling so much that I really didn't stay in one place too long. It was really fun to pull out a map and be like, all right, where would the next, I had to look, like pull up train stops from 1935, you know? Um, so that was fun. But I will say it was the most emotional book I've ever written for me. Um, and the first draft of it, I wrote 87,000 words and then I threw them in the trash because I've like, this doesn't, this story means a lot to me and the character means a lot to me. I just didn't feel like I was doing it justice. Like it wasn't deep enough. And I knew that rather than trying to piece together a story that didn't feel right, it was better just to start over. So I did. And I had to be so kind of raw and emotional to let this story happen. Um, I pull a lot from my own personal experiences and um, there were, there's a handful of scenes that I still can't read without tearing up. So getting through those just on an emotional level was quite difficult because I had to push pretty hard and then I had to rewrite enough times where I felt like I was reaching deep enough. Mm. Well, this is just an amazing book and an amazing story. And I'm really excited that it's going to be available for everybody this summer to read. Can you tell people where they can find you online, where they can find other things you're written uh, can you tell them maybe other books that you might want them to buy and this one, obviously? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, I My website is carrywrites.com and you can find all of my books on there and my bio and 
all of my podcasts and stuff that I've done. Um, I'm really active on TikTok, which is also Carrie Writes. So I have a Badass Women in History series that I do on there, and I'm just obsessed with it. Super fun. So I do all these different stories that I research about women in history that you probably have not heard about. And um, I'm also on Instagram. I think it's Carrie Writes as well. Um, so fairly active on social media, um, but all the information for all my books is on um is on Carrie Wright's. And then I also have a historical fiction trilogy that's in two books are out and the third one will be out next year. And that is also based on um, the true story of the French orphans that settled Canada. Wow. Well, we're so excited for people to read this book and all of your other writing. I mean, I was crying by the end of it. I have to admit. (laughs) Oh, thank you. I cried at the end of it too. (laughs) Yeah. It's so, it really is. It's so well-written and you get so into it. So I really hope that everyone goes out and get, just falls in love with Magnolia and her story. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Well, thank you again for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thanks for chatting. Of course. 